What's up, guys? We're back with another episode of Unhinged with the iconic and amazing Aurora James. I read her book twice. It comes out today, Wildflower. There's a link in the episode description. I'm honored to call her a friend. She's a creative director and founder of Brother Valleys, the founder of 15% Fled, Fledge, oh, Mum Brain, Pledge, a racial justice organization that encourages retailers to commit 15% shelf space to Black-owned businesses, and she's here to talk about the book. Welcome to Unhinged. Hi, Emrit. I'm so happy to be here. I love that we are both West Coast girlies now. What happened? I know. I guess the pandemic happened, but then also like appreciation for quality of life happened too. And you did a million things. <laughs> and then you just, you burst into a million flames, beautiful flames. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. I think like, I don't know, when I first moved to America, I came to LA first. And I think there's always been like, something about LA that's really pulled me here. I think a huge part of that has been like the weather, the plants, all of that stuff, right? And so it feels good to be back. I didn't realize how big plants were in your life until I read the book. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, no pun intended as well with this giant tree in my office. But I think I just always, that's how I feel grounded. I feel like really connected to nature. My mom is a landscape architect. She was always raising me with plants and flowers. And I just, it's just, I I can't, if I'm in a room that doesn't have plants, I like, I notice it. I notice it now too, when I'm back in New York, if I don't like put my feet in the ground, if I don't get like sunlight, sunset, direct light, I notice that now that I've changed my quality of life, which is crazy because I'm from Australia and I grew up with that. And I think I just took it for granted. I'm sure probably the same for you with Mississauga. Indian people represent the home of my, <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> yeah, Mississauga. It's so funny because when you come from it, like when, you, when you're when you not from America or whatever, people say like, oh, where are you from? You just say like the next biggest city. So I'm always like mm-hmm. Toronto, you know, because people, a lot of the people in America barely even know where Canada is. So no offense, you know, but like, so to have someone actually know where Mississauga is or like Lauren Park, more specifically, the like micro neighborhood that I grew up in is just very new to me. Of course, there's a very large brown community there. I have family it's friends huge. that live there, actually. Huge. 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 Oh, wait, I, I want to talk to you about the book. So how did you, st- did you intend to write a memoir or did it just kind of come It was kind of, I think the original intention was that it was going to be a little bit more business focused, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, still like memoir E, but like slightly more business focused, you know, after launching the pledge and all of that jazz and Brother Valley's. But then I think, you know, as I started writing it and as I started talking to my editor, like so much about how I approach business and talk about business has been tied to my experience in the world. Right. And like the ways in which I define success, which are very different than a lot of other people. Totally. And did you, so, so in that case, did you write it? it the book is chronological. Did you kind of have to go back then and sort of rejig yeah. all the pieces? Or what was that yeah. process like? Well, in the beginning, when I first started writing it, I kind of wrote about the end first. Like I wrote about Brother Valleys and, and, and why Brother Valleys. Like, was kind of the same manifestation as the pledge, right? It was about supporting underrepresented groups of people and like allowing them a platform. 
And, um, and, and then I sort of, it, it was really hard to answer, like, why, why in the world would I like want to commit my life to doing something like that? Or, you know, it sounds really nice, but it's a little bit overly Pollyanna, unless you kind of understand how I think and feel about the world and some of my own experiences. And, and, and so then we just ended up, sh- I mean, it took two and a half years to write this book. So we were just shuffling things around all the time. And I was constantly being like, oh, I need to take this out. I need to take that out. I, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then like life kept happening. So I was like, at what point do I cut the cord here? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And then at a certain point, we just like had to cut the cord, you know, girl, we had to be like, the book is done. Let's go. This is it, Benit. This how is did it. you edit actually? How did you choose to include like what, what was significant? What wasn't? Or like, how did you sort of like filter through everything? Well, I think the things that I initially wanted to take out like the ba- the most were the ones that I realized I probably needed to leave in the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like that concept of like you have to do the thing you're dreading the most or putting off the most. Totally, and and I think within fashion, like we spend so much time sort of straightening our own costume of identity to make sure that it's on correctly. And I think the process of writing a memoir, if you're doing it properly or at least attempting to do it properly. It means that you really have to take off that outer layer and like kind of show the raw gooey inside and be extremely vulnerable. And I think the thing that I've realized that I've become known for is putting things out there that are not perfect, right? I think that perfection is the enemy of good. And um, it's okay to like, or at least I was taught in my family that it's okay to kind of put an idea out there, even when it's half-baked. And kind of allow for community to join you and fill in some of the blanks together. And that's what will actually make it stronger. I know that my point of view is just my point of view. So getting other points of view involved in, in, mm-hmm. in a reality could, could be helpful. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think my life is just like, there's parts of it that are just like really bad. And then there's parts of it that are weird. And there's parts of it that are questionable and arguable, right? And I think mm-hmm. that it's important to keep those things in there. And then, you know, it was so funny, Amber, when I was getting ready to write the book, I kept humming and hawing over like how I would write about like different men in my life. And my whole philosophy with writing was like, just write, just write, just write, just write. And then however you want to edit it, you can think about that later. And then when I would look back on the pages, I was like, oh, actually, there's like nothing about any of these guys. There's a little like, bit. There's a little bit of tea, guys. There's a, t- there's a little there's bit like of tea. There's like maybe a tiny bit, but then I realized like, mm-hmm. oh, actually, maybe they weren't that important at all. Um, maybe I they actually, were. I don't know. I love that. I love that because I think we give way too much real estate to partners in our Totally. Place. Totally. Considering <laughs> like so much of the anxiety for women is like tied to finding the right partner partnering in the right way with the right partner, like all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually think about it and you go back and you write your life story, it's like, yeah, there's footnotes about them. But actually at certain points, I was like, who was I dating then again at that time? Like, I couldn't even remember. You had a really good line in the thank yous. It was something like to do with men specifically. It was like, thank you for like being a part of this, but not, but this not being like the whole thing or like this. not. Oh, being yeah. Us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because I, I also, like, it's oh, like, bam. Right. It's also like a little bit offensive. <laughs> but also, listen, we were dating in New York 
you know, so we we've, we kind of saw it all. Like we dating in yeah. New York for 10 years is like dating for 100 years, I feel like personally. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, dating in LA is also a very special experience. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you talk about like putting out half-baked ideas and leaning on community, which is actually something I find so inspiring about you is you shared so much of the process along the way. And I think so many people have difficulty with executing an idea. So to see you literally write something on a piece of paper and then watch that grow into, you know, this movement that's redirected if you guys are new to this $10 billion of, of yeah, in, into black businesses. Like, do you ever listen to that statistic and think like, I did that from an idea that I put down to piece of paper and like this now exists. Like that's a pretty wild thing. Yeah. What I think about is, oh my God, this, is an amazing opportunity. There are so many things that have to happen in order to get this across the line fully in an amazing, incredible way. I better not fuck this up. <laughs> like it's always, I take every, just to be totally honest, I take like every achievement and like somehow turn it into like a self task or a reason to be self critical or push myself to do more. But like, yes, absolutely. There's 628 black owned brands that we've put onto the shelves of major retailers across this country. When you walk into Sephora, it looks like a completely different store. You know, Sephora in Canada has committed 25% of their shelf space to BIPOC owned brands, which is crazy. I mean, like it's literally, I think the work that me and all of my colleagues at the 15% Pledge have been doing has really literally changed the face of the American retail landscape. So I think that that's incredible. Um, and I think it's just about continuing to push forward, right? And to make sure that like women are going to be, in, you know, the, the, the predominant recipients of that um, capital. 1000%. And when a brand comes to you and they're like okay this is it we want we're all in we want to participate in the pledge I'm so curious as to what that process is like because obviously that's just the beginning right yeah a retailer yeah so they'll come to us and they'll say you know usually they come and they say what does this really mean and we talk them through Mm -hmm. like all of the different steps right like first we need to figure out what percentage of your shelves right now are even going to black owned brands? And when I first put this idea into the world, Amrit, I didn't know what the representation numbers would be. I knew that a lot of times, like my brand, Brother Veli's, and like Off White and Fear of God were kind of like the only black owned brands that maybe I knew that were on shelves, mm-hmm. Briogeo and the Honeypot on Beauty. Like, but I didn't know that the majority of retailers across the country had less than 1% of their shelf space going to black owned brands. And many were like 0%. That is wild. I know. So and it's I, a big And I also think it's surprising to those retailers as well. Like, do, did, do you feel like there was a response where they were like, we actually had no idea until we like did an audit of this? Yeah, they all had no idea. Because it just wasn't something, that's the whole thing about the pledge. It wasn't something that people were checking for before. It wasn't a way, like, I think the, the, the brilliance in the whole thing was that we were able to take a period of time, 2020, a couple of days after George Floyd was murdered and, and corporations were freaking out. They didn't know what to do. We were able to take a highly volatile, emotional situation 
and create an actionable metric for corporations that they could gauge their own success to, right? Because in corporate world, if you can't track it, you can't tackle it really. And so it was like, okay, here's an actual thing that you guys can do. And like, yes, it's amazing that you donated a million dollars to the NAACP or Black Lives Matter, but actually we need to get real dollars into Black communities and Black-owned businesses are the perfect vehicle to do that. Because, you know, I also write about my mom when I, when, you know, my grandmother used to be really super sweet and she used to like, foster all of these children in Africa through like world vision, you know, and my mom would make these like, you know, really kind of off the cuff, like remarks about, you know, my grandmother doing this and she would be like, you can give a man a fish and you can feed him for a day, but if you teach a man to fish, you'll feed him for a lifetime. And so that tension that exists in our house between my grandmother, who's kind of like this ultra conservative waspy, like almost like a Christian missionary vibes to my mom, who was like, you know, taking acid on Tuesdays and like not shaving her legs and like, you know, trying to grow pot at city hall. It was like very fascinating. And so I think for me, it was really about, okay, how can we, how can both things be true, right? How can we help people, but how can we also do good business so that it'll be sustainable so that they can help themselves? Also like this, both things being true, I feel like is the through line of your book. Or that's what it was for me. Yeah, absolutely. If whom I hadn't have already taken both and as a book title, I would have been all over that because it's like, it's a reality of the situation too, right? It, people ask me all the time, like, oh, are you a socialist or a capitalist? I'm like, well, you, both can be true, I suppose, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. and, and I think what's so difficult about today's society is that we're really committed to forcing people into these boxes, Right. It's like, yep. oh, like you're a monogamous, you're polyamorous. Like there's like this it, right? And to me, it's like, mm, like it's all a sliding scale so often. And um, the more that we can kind of understand and give each other that flexibility, I think the more free we'll be. It, it really is. An, and we lose, there's just no space for nuance and with one another, but also with ourselves, because I... I know personally, a lot of the work that I do in therapy is like both things can be true and like contradictory validity like can exist. Like I have a really turbulent relationship with my mother and we're in a good place now, like similar Mm. to you. I I related on so many levels, but I was like, it does not make me a bad person to say she did her best and I still love her, but acknowledge the things that went, you know, that like happened in our relationship because like you said, like both things can be true. How do you, right. um, how do you like unpack that? <laughs> with my, with, like with my mom specifically or just like with, in life, with, with, my mom? with just like being objective with yourself, right? Like, yeah. cause some, I feel like doing the work yourself, starting that train of thought with yourself can be really difficult because we so want to like take all these things into our identity be like, but I'm this and it's like this and, it, but it's never really black and white. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like for me when I stopped being vegan, but didn't start eating meat or dairy. Mm -hmm. It's like, what does it mean to divorce from this identity so that you can actually be free in your experience of what that quote unquote identity actually is? Right. Like, how do you love in a way that's unique to you without having to love within the confines of the description or prescription of what that type of love means? And I think that. So often, and maybe you can relate to this, like 
as a mother and also as a daughter, there's almost this prescription of how we have to relate to that title that may not actually represent the best way that we want to love or be loved. And I think in the case of my mom, she was actually an incredible mom to me in so many ways, but then also like pretty shitty and some other like key moments, you know? And <sighs> I think giving her space to show up as herself first was one of the most liberating things I ever did for myself, my own healing, and also for our relationship. And also, you know, my mom and I were texting this week. It's like, I don't feel pressure to like pick up the phone and call her and have these like long conversations with her and talk to her about who I'm dating or how I'm feeling or, you know, it's like, if I want to call her, I'll call her, but I don't want to have to feel that pressure to be a certain type of daughter or to have a certain type of relationship with her. Like I felt for years, like so many people being like, Oh my God, it's so awful that you and your mom don't have like this kind of relationship or that kind of relationship. And I'm like, is it, I don't know. I don't know. Cause she also gave me, she also taught me enough to like be free and stand on my own too. I don't know. So it's, it's all gray. I'm right. It's all gray. It really is all great. You know what is insane is you then have to like reassess like now I'm a new parent. I have to take a step back and like take my feelings out of it because I have it. I actually have it on both sides. I have an absent father and then I have a mother who had the best intentions, but sometimes we just didn't really get there. Yeah. And she just came to stay with me or her for three weeks. (gasps) in my house and I have not spent I would say um more than 24 hours with her in like 25 in like 18 years so wow at the the same time I was like I'm not depriving her an opportunity of meeting her granddaughter but it was (laughs) so I was I read your book and I cried and I read it again and I was like you know what we just have to take these expectations that society has, you know, created for us to project on our parents and just let them show up in the way they can. Yeah, because I think for me, I'm so lenient with some of my friends. Like, I'm like, you got to do what feels good for you, girl, first Mm -hmm. and foremost, right? And I was thinking like, okay, my mom had friends that were saying that to her, right? Because they Mm -hmm. had seen her whole life unfold and know, you know, what was triggering for her, what was working, when she chose herself, when she chose other people. Mm -hmm. And they were also her counsel to help her navigate the world as best that she could. And she did. And I'm alive. Yeah. And and I'm mad (laughs) at her because she wasn't like taking cake to school for me on like food day or something like that. You know what I mean? And if I can let that go and just experience her as I would experience any of my friends showing up as themselves authentically, then it's going to be a little bit better. What was your um, process with doing the work to like kind of actively un- un- like lose those expectations? I know you talk about like Hoffman and yeah. hypnotherapy in the book. <laughs> Did I mention? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the hypnotherapist was someone I dated, so that was like a very. Oh, cool- oh my god! No, okay. You see, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. So we did all kinds Wait, of. Were you were you stressed about that? Like maybe he's like. Of course, I was stressed. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I was like, oh, wow, I've, like, never loved doing certain things more than in this relationship, you know. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, But, but yeah, Hoffman really did help me, to be honest with you, because uh, there's so much that you carry baggage-wise, right, along along the way. And I think for me, I just needed to take a time out and actually unpack my own baggage and see like what is in here because if I'm going to be carrying this around I want to at least know what I'm carrying because shit is heavy yeah and I hadn't really actually taken the time I mean of course I go to therapy like once a week once every other week but actually like sitting down for like seven days eight days and just nonstop go 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 trying to get to that I think was so important for me um and then just generally, like, I don't know, I, it was, it's like your options are forgiving or being angry. Yeah. And you can't or change Or you it. carrying the weight. Or you carrying yeah. the weight. And then it's like, not only am I mad, now I have to continue to carry this for the rest of my life. No, I don't think so. Totally. I don't have space for that. Totally. And I'd rather just like float lighter through life. I do get a little scared though. With- Why? uncovering I I don't know I did ayahuasca once Uh I did it twice actually the second time so so much came back to me that I was like wow I think I disassociated my entire childhood I was like what the hell and then I've never been back since because I'm like I'm still unpacking that and that was like almost 10 years ago I like yeah it's and and I'm always curious when I meet people who say oh I go like once a week or whatever I'm like how to do ayahuasca oh they do it like in controlled that you know like they do the smaller yeah or they like do it so frequently because I'm like I'm still unpacking and dealing with all of that that came back to me yeah that's fascinating I feel like ayahuasca more than twice a year is probably a challenging thing to do but I've only done it once and same I mean people do always say ayahuasca and Hoffman are kind of the same thing except one is like medically induced or sorry plant induced and the other is like you know through conversation and such but um yeah I mean listen best case scenario you 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 kind of do spend time unpacking and allowing things to unfold and it but it is scary it's like I realized so my dad left when I was really younger when I was six or something and and I remember like going to the window and watching the car drive away and and I realized in my 30s like when I when I was living in Brooklyn every time like my boyfriend at the time would leave I would go to the window and like watch his car drive away. Mm-hmm. And so I was like re-traumatizing myself and like doing this whole weird thing with like attachment and fear of abandonment, like basically every day. And it's like, yeah. that dude's coming back. Like I don't need to worry. But by the way, like if he doesn't come back, that's also okay. But I think for me, it was like even understanding how my own patterns are showing up in my life to re-traumatize me and like to force me to kind of stay in this circle of um, like snake eating its tail of like pain was was like also really illuminating because it's just like we're going so fast and so much of it is about being avoidant right it's like Mm -hmm. or or trying to change ourselves or trying to change other people 
It's like, I wonder if it's also like comfortable, like you're just comfortable in that. And like, that might not necessarily be the best thing for you, but it's what you know. So like, absolutely. The the repetition versus like actually breaking that cycle. No, that's why we look for people that like show up to disappoint us in the way we expect to be disappointed. Right. It's like, would you, (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's like, would you rather be loved or would you rather be right? You know, it's like some people Mm -hmm. spend so much time just like arguing to be right, whether it's like in relationship or with friends or just with their own life. Like they're like, I'm not worthy. So then they just like keep seeking out these situations to just repeatedly prove to themselves that they're not worthy. You know, which is why a lot of people can't pivot. And that's something that you are a master of. Like the one thing that I took from the book is, man, you are such a resilient person. You've pivoted your way out of unfathomable situations. Mm, thanks. I love a Teach pivot. us. I love a pivot. I don't know. I think that's the attachment thing, right? Like mm-hmm. I get really attached to people sometimes, but I don't really get attached to many other things. And I think you have to wake up every day and choose that thing. And sometimes it just gets too hard to keep saying yes to certain things right? And also you have to acknowledge when something's just not working Um, and be willing to like switch it up or try something new or take a leap of faith. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, lots of bad, horrible things, but I think (laughs) within the context of like, I don't know. I think I, I do believe that I'm like a very resilient person. Someone was saying something to me the other day about about a person and, and, and it was in a business environment. And she was like, I just feel like he's trying to hustle me. And I was like, he's absolutely trying to hustle you because he's a hustler. And he was born a hustler because he had to hustle because otherwise he would be dead. Right. And I think that some of us learn certain things like the ability to pivot through, um, the desire to like stay alive. And the only way that you will be able, it was like, you know, when I first moved to America, like I didn't have, people always have this assumption that like I had like family who would take care of me or something like that. And that really like was not the case in, in, in my house growing up. My mom has a very weird relationship to money where, wherein she doesn't hold on to it and, um, <laughs> and therefore cannot give it to me. But, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I just had to figure it out, right. It, you just have to figure it out. And, um, I was talking to a couple of girls yesterday who are much younger than me and they were saying like, oh, as an artist, is it better to be in New York or better to be in LA? And the first thing that popped in my head was like LA, because if you become homeless, like you're able to sleep outside in a safer way, right? And (laughs) it's like very terrible and horrible, right? But I also just believe that like, I don't know, I, 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 yeah, it's hard. But, but in, but I do think also New York, because it's like do or die, right? Yeah, yeah, and I remember yeah. moving to LA being like, why did I find this move so much harder than moving from Perth, Australia to New York with no friends, no money, no visa, literally leaving the country every 90 days. And then I realized it's because I had nothing to lose. Yep. Yep. Totally. And, and New York is a constant collision, right? Like you're, you walk outside of your house, you never know who will be there. You sit on the subway, you never know who will be there. You go, the New York just takes you with it. 
right? Like you step outside and you are swept up into whatever New York wants to take you through in that day. And it is completely unavoidable. And you roll with it and you say yes, and you keep saying yes, and it keeps giving you things and it keeps slapping the shit out of you at the same time, right? But you're just on the journey of New York. LA, very different. It's like you're in your home, you're in your car, you're going to a destination. You're mm-hmm. probably not seeing anyone that you know unless you're intentionally going somewhere where you think there'll be people that you know. So the level of isolation and intention in LA has to be so much greater. Um, but when I first moved to LA, I was in a very specific situation where the person that I was dating and subsequently married like was very creative and like borderline like you know, really living on the bare minimum. He ended up getting that job at Pinkberry, which helped us pay the rent. But um, like, you know, so I think the creative community that I intersected with when I first moved to LA was was very uh, much more like do or die. Yeah. And he lived with his mom. Wow. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was really unhinged. (laughs) Yeah, you guys are going to have to read the book for for that tea. Yeah, yeah, she was a difficult one. When you were writing everything, mm-hmm. did you was there anything that surprised you? When like was there anything that surprised you that came out and you're like, oh wow, I like I'd totally forgotten about that or that wasn't even like in my I think brain. what surprised me so much is like how much my childhood and also my eating disorder is now affecting people. I'm like, whoa, you read the whole book and like the childhood is sticking with you. And I think that that's sort of interesting because like, yes, my childhood was like really sad and traumatic, but I think it was 30 years ago. So I feel like I've sort of moved on from it. But to me, when people were like, whoa, it was so bad. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. I guess it was like, did I, did I do enough to process it? Like, the fact that I feel so at peace with it, is that genuinely authentic or is it avoidance? You know, that part. But you've done the work. I believe that I have done the work. And so I feel like yeah. I'm at peace with it. So that's also why I feel like I'm okay to talk about it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think it's like so much more normal than people realize. Like most I mean, people this- have fucked up lives though. Right. Fucked up childhoods, fucked up. Right. Like people were like, oh my God, I can't believe that you were like sexually abused. I'm like, can't you? Because one or one in three girls are sexually assaulted or raped by the time they're 18. So like, if you're that shocked, like what is a, you're lucky, right? Mm -hmm. Two is maybe you haven't had relationships with, with, with people where they've been open enough to share their story with you because odds are good. There's a lot of people in your life that have been that way. Right. Or Three, like, what is your relationship to the idea of abuse that you think that someone who's like fairly well adjusted or successful couldn't have possibly gone through that scenario? Right. I mean, there's definitely, I think, a stereotype around that. There, I think there is in that part. I think I'm a little bit surprised by, you know, because I don't think I was that aware of it like people were like are you sure you want to put that out there are you sure you want to put that out there and I'm like well if I don't put that out there then I think that people also aren't going to understand my relationship with my mom right Right. and how painful it was like when she didn't believe me that I was abused Mm -hmm. right 
And so if I don't share that part of it, you're really just only looking through like a keyhole into the room of the relationship with my mom. And I think that to your point, like so many of us have fractured relationships with our mothers that we're working to, you know, change, or maybe we're working to become at peace with in the exact way that they are. Right. But I just felt like I wanted to be honest with mine because so many women that I know, like feel so much guilt about not being closer to their moms. And I actually like love the relationship that my mom and I have close from far, far from close. (laughs) Wow. I need I, I you need to like rub that off on me a little bit. It's and fine. but also that's like so part of your why, which reading the book and and the inclusion of the childhood and and sort of like everything that kind of came from that is you couldn't I, I don't know how you could have written that book without all of that. Right. Don't you think so? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because but I guess you didn't intend to. But then that wasn't the book you intended to write. I'm, which is what I'm gathering from what you're saying. Right, right, yeah. Because the book I did an NPR thing a couple years ago after the after the pledge, and that's when the publisher reached out to me, and it was much more like, you know, how did how do you how the heck did you get on the phone with 29 CEOs and like Pete Nordstrom and convince them to sign like a 10 year contract with your organization that was like brand new. You know what I mean? How did you? How did you tell us? Oh my God. A lot of just like really honest human conversations, right? Mm. Because humanity also has to exist in business and people want to so desperately separate them. And I just really believe that the more humanity we can inject into business, like the better we will actually all be, we'll feel better. I think we'll do better business. That's why I'm like, it doesn't have to be you're a socialist or a capitalist. You can also right. just make money all trying to do good things, I, I think, right? Are you going to do it perfectly? No. Are you going to make mistakes? Absolutely, right? Like I've made tons of mistakes. I've messed up so many different things. I started my business with $3,500 at a flea market on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Like obviously like there were times that like I had bills that I couldn't pay and like definitely got evicted. I remember when I was in the fashion fund and I was like getting evicted from my apartment, you know what I mean? So there's like all of these things that are not going to be as perfect as they look on social media, but it doesn't mean that you can't make it through it and still do great things in the world. Do you have actually any advice for people who want to be more conscious with their spending, but might not necessarily have the privilege to like financially, you know, say, I'm never going to shop at Target. I'm never going to shop at X, Y, and Z. Like, cause that is the case for so many Americans, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were just, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, actually. Um, I think it's so complicated. I, to me, it's not that we need to shame Americans for shopping at Target or Walmart. It's that we need to convince Target and Walmart that they potentially need to think a little bit differently about their profit structure and make sure that their supply chain, which largely is consisting of women of color around the world in China and Bangladesh and all of these places, are actually paid more fairly, right? Because when you think about it, it's like Mm -hmm. if you're buying something for $200, right, at Target, let's just say. That thing was sold to them for like $85 or $70, somewhere around there. And they put that huge markup on it. 
And it's like, okay, what happens if we just shift their like shift their markup a little bit to be able to make things a little bit more humane for all of the makers on the supply chain side of things in all of these third world countries that are just getting squeezed into really horrible situations. Um, and we love to do this thing in, in the world where even in LA, right, it's like they're about to launch this like water campaign to try to get people in LA to take shorter showers. And it's like, okay, but like, uh, individual water consumption is right. not the problem here. It's like it's it's corporate and agricultural water usage that's actually the issue. So you're making us feel bad when really the corporations are the ones that are doing 98% of the damage here. And that's right. the part that I feel like is unfair. And that's what I think that we need to think about. Do you know, I actually didn't realize that all the water and gas bills were tiered based on that so you it's like tiered in a way where you end up getting like paying all these like tariffs and like extra like percentages when you like exceed a certain amount and like because like we have a a really nice we have like I don't know if you call it reticulation here in America but we're like always watering the plants we always exceed it oh drip irrigation yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no it's like a whole thing I mean yeah, corporate, corporate, uh, corporate accountability, right? <laughs> they don't want to be they don't want to be accountable for what they're actually doing, the damage that they're actually doing. They'd rather pass it on to consumers. And I think my whole thing is, is you know, how do you get corporations to actually be a little bit accountable for some of the things that they're doing and communicate about it openly, effectively, and honestly? And then how do we find ways to actually be more positive and progressive in our decision making that can actually be good business as well? So then how do you communicate in a way that you're heard? Because a lot of times people, you know, don't, I don't know. It's Listen. difficult, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I think because you read the book, you know, my grandmother was pretty, uh, like, I guess the word you might want to use would be racist. And so I think that. <laughs> By the way, I did not know that about that song. You oh something. yeah, eeny meeny miny mo catch a mm-hmm, by the toe. Yes, bad song. Wow, bad song. But you know the word replacement tigger. I just never thought most people don't think about it. It's like oh yeah, that's a like racist slave song. Um, that my grandmother used to sing. So I think yeah, for wild. me, <laughs> I think for me growing up in a house where people had wildly different perceptions about the world and what should happen. And then just understanding that a lot of hate can come from fear, right? And the fear comes from insecurity or lack of understanding. And it's not, not negotiable, right? Like you can dispel fear. You can work on all of these things. You can build bridges with other people, but you can't do it if everyone has their swords up. It's like someone has to put down the armor first. And it's like, have you ever gone to a really like bad dinner party where everyone's just talking about superficial things? And it's like, okay, I went to one of these dinners the other day and it was like, okay, there We do live in LA, so yeah, pretty often. Right, right. And I was like, there are like 20 incredible women at this dinner 
And like, mm-hmm. we can keep talking about like these things that just do not matter. Or I can try to put myself out there and mm-hmm. bring the conversation a little bit deeper because we could actually do something here. And it's kind of like, okay, who's going to like take off their clothes and streak first, right? Like who's going to allow themselves to be vulnerable first. And I think in vulnerability is where true connection can happen. Um, and, and I think you have to be willing to do that in business settings as well, too. You have to, you have to be willing to try. And so I think, you know, just having really honest conversations with, with a lot of these retailers and CEOs and uh, C-suite people and founders was really the way that I went about it. And there were a lot of tears and, and, you know, on both sides, right? Like talking about racial issues is really difficult. Um, but I think ultimately the vast majority of humans are good people and I think that they want to leave a positive legacy behind. And um, I think if you give people a path and an opportunity to do that and you and you are willing to actually also hold their hand in partnership to do that, then real right. change can happen. I definitely think a lot of people, well, everyone intrinsically is good, most people. Yeah. And yeah. one, like they're lazy, yeah. where everyone is just lazy. And a lot of people truly don't know how to do the work. They just don't. And that's what we realized over the last few years. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and learning how to do the work is like a constant struggle too, right? It's like when I was little, we used to donate uh, uh, like extra clothes when we do spring cleaning to like people in Africa, quote unquote. And then when I first started going to Africa and was looking for artisans and just meeting different people, I learned that 70% of the manufacturing in Ethiopia had been shut down because of American donated clothing. It was just like, they were swimming yeah. in this freaking clothing that we'd been donating from H&M and like it had killed all of their local manufacturing because there were just no opportunity for local people to sell any of their goods anymore, right? And, yeah. you know, another thing that my grandmother used to say was the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I'd always be like, wow, that's so dark, but it's true, mm-hmm. right? Like we were trying to do a good thing by donating clothes to people in Africa. We thought that was a thing that was needed. And it turns out we ruined huge swaths of their economy by not knowing how to do good. So I think we constantly have to be listening and empowering people to act on their own behalf, right? Yeah. And you know, I I find it funny that she would say that is because we're both from Commonwealth countries. So for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. totally. We've lived that. We've yeah. lived it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There are some details I wanted to ask about from the book. So I wanted some unhinged okay. exclusives. So okay. um the second part of your CFDA, was it for the incubator? You created that book? That like handbound book? Oh yeah. I had for to an do application. A bunch of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wanted to know what the Joan Didion quote was. Do you remember? Shoot. Oh I just god. went to her exhibit at the LACMA. It was amazing. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh my god! I oh, no, don't was it the La- no? It was at the Hammer. Was it the Hammer or the LACMA? It's like I I feel like it's actually on now. I don't remember, but I need to go to that exhibit. Shoot! I wish I could remember. And the other thing I wanted was the recipe for the is it twenty five ingredient chili? Oh yeah, I can give that to you. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, there's literally twenty five. Oh, the 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 chili that my mom used to steal the ingredients for. And then I started stealing the ingredients for in Kensington Market when I used to live in Kensington Market. Yes, I can get that to you. Absolutely. Amazing. 
Yeah. I wanted some un- I wanted some unhinged exclusive, you know. I had well, to. I have to tell you, Amber. We have you have to do one more question because I already gave that recipe to the New York Times two years ago. Oh, that's so great! <laughs> You're like not this casual flex, bitch. I already gave this recipe to the New York Times. Wow, <laughs> Aurora James, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> actually i do have I, ha- I had another question on unhinged exclusive but i wanted to know your love languages i was curious mm, after reading the book quality time and like a vampire of time <laughs> um and trust me i am and i think um i also need words of affirmation and which is sad and then i think that what i give <laughs> is also quality time. And I would either say um, words of affirmation or giving gifts. I think gifts is sometimes if I'm late. I mean, I love to give people gifts. I get that from my father. He would give me gifts in lieu of quality time. Well, I actually... I had a feeling it was gifts just based off the way that you would like write those like news that, you know, like you would write the newsletters and stuff like that. I'm like, she's a gift giver. Yeah. Yeah. I can no, tell. I love doing that. I love like seeing things and thinking about a person. And then, you know, I also like, I love having food delivered for people all the time. I feel like half the time I'm just Instacarting for other people, like sending like Erewhon juices to a friend and stuff. Like I just yeah. love doing that. That's sweet. That yeah. I never thought about like doing the little like Instacart thing. I do it when people are sick. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, so you but do I'm, it. But I want to do it more now. Now you inspired me. Well, you're in LA, so you can do Flamingo Estate. What I do is like a Flamingo Estate Ooh. deliveries for people sometimes. That's very flexy. Yeah, that's really flexy. Wait, I um, I know you have a lot going on. And before we wrap, I want to ask you just one last question. Okay, yeah. What do you have coming up that is excites you? Hmm. I think I talked to a psychic the other day. Ooh. She said all kinds of things that were definitely like unhinged and like probably really wrong. Tell us. So Tell us. She told me, <laughs> she told, <laughs> one thing she said to me that was at the most unhinged where I was like, I don't know that I can trust anything else that you have to say to me at this point. But she told me that, that the relationship that I actually like that just finished in my life was with my soulmate and that I actually needed to repair it because that was the person that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I was like, Oh no. And then I was like, I can't like, that's what you get for taking like psychic recommendations from your ex's sister. I was like, I can't do that anymore. No. but what was also she tipped her. She was like, Hey, job well done. Thank you so much. (laughs) Totally. Um, And then, (gasps) and then she said two other things to me that were really fascinating. She said that, that, um, that a person that I was presently dating was going to be reputationally damaging, which I thought was fascinating and dark. Yeah. So then I was like side-eyeing all these guys. But do you think she was like saying all these polarizing things because she wanted to keep you as a recurrent client? Because I've I've gotten that vibe with psychics before where they'll like say like leading things and I'm like, oh, you just want me to keep coming back. I know. You're like me, a skeptic, a true skeptic. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally Mm -hmm. possible. And then the other thing that she said to me was that people were going to have a very difficult time understanding 
parts of my book and that there would be some conflict that arose from that. And so I guess to flip it around on you, I would love to know what were the most difficult parts for you to understand or reconcile with in the book? Like, were there parts where you were just like this, this bitch, like it's. Okay. My honest, honest opinion Uh was I, I wondered how you had such a good relationship with places like Vogue and the CFDA Mm -hmm. when you know, sometimes like those institutions haven't necessarily reflected all the things you value. <laughs> I'm like trying to be diplomatic, but also like I said my pee, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's such good a good question though. Yeah, no, I think, and that's what I think it's important to talk mm-hmm. about, right? Because if yeah. you're thinking those things, then it's important to kind of I would have asked. I would have asked you offline, but sometimes I don't want to steamroll someone like, in a public forum because, yeah, you know, I don't think it gives them like the best avenue to like answer honestly. Yeah, Not everybody's comfortable having this type of conversation. I yeah. love it. Yeah. But, well, I'm Canadian. Yeah. So I feel like we live in this sort of like, let's ask the tough questions world. I think, you know, both are, very, so both, I think of both of them as being like very different institutions and the CFDA, I think the CFDA Firstly, for those who don't know, it's like an actual organization. It's almost like the union of designers. And I think that there's definitely been a lack of diversity there because there's been a lack of diversity amongst designers just in general. And I think that comes from the fact that truly you really do have to be rich as it stands right now to create a fashion business that's like huge and successful. Like you have to raise money and it's very hard to raise money because there's no one to sell your business to afterwards and investors don't want to give you money that you just sit on for the rest of your life. They want you to sell your business, right? And um, I think there's all these institutional things, also nepotism that's made it so hard. There was a part of my book I write about like competing for the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund and I was like, had to shoot this video and I had my like little iPhone camera and I was so nervous. And Jonathan Mm Simkai was like, Oh, I have like a whole film crew and like a red camera and a drone and a director. And I was just like, Oh my God, I'm poor. Like, has he read the book by the way? I was not going to ask you that. Yeah. (laughs) No, but he's now my neighbor. So I'm expecting like a knock on my door. (laughs) I love you, Simkai. So I think for me, and it's so fascinating because to your earlier point, it's like, people kind of are good people at their core, right? And mm-hmm. I think when I look at like all of the individual people that work at the CFDA, they're all absolutely lovely. And the that organization and the member group, well, there's a couple things. What was an issue for me also was the CFDA awards because I was like, love the row, but why mm-hmm. are you getting nominated and every single year? So then I yeah. was like, okay, who's actually voting for these things? And so they have like this nominating board of people. And so I had them give me that list. If they're guild members, it's like 500 people. And then I went through and found like all the people of color, all the black people. And I wrote to them all. And I said like, hey, did you guys get the link to vote? Some of them didn't even know that they were voting members. So yeah. I was like, yeah, you're a voting member. You should be voting. You have the right to vote. Like, let's update your email address. Mm-hmm. Like, let's figure this out, right? It's not that different than like with the Oscars, the Academy and, and who gets to vote and who's invited to vote. And so I think for me, it's like, okay. I always I always get the, 
If this is the last day to submit your vote email, I'm like, okay, I'm so sorry. You do? You get that? I leave it. On, I leave it on the line. I'm like the. I, maybe that's like from you, but um, I get it. I get them now. It's like right, okay, this great. is it. Right. Yeah. That's so important. So there's only 500 people that get to vote. Mm-hmm. And so I think like broadening that scope, right, is so critical and saying like, who are these people that get to designate what's important and what's not important within fashion? Yep. What voices are important and which aren't? And so I think mm-hmm. to me, it's like, okay, where I have an issue is if you go into an institution and someone says no. If someone's like, no, you can't have the list. No, you can't invite that person to participate. No, you can't, right? And I am much more a fan of saying time out. Let's do an assessment of where we're at. Let's make a plan to grow together that feels good. And let's talk through some of the pain points that have happened so that we know how we can move forward differently in the future. I'm way more interested in doing that than I am like, going into someone's Twitter from 15 years ago and like finding the weird thing that they said, mm-hmm. like there's all kinds of shit in, in, in everyone's history. And like, should, should they have to like, you know, answer for some of that? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Right. But should we throw the whole institution in the trash? I don't think so. Sometimes probably. Right. But yeah. usually <laughs> I'm going to veer on like, no, let's try to fix it first and rebuild it a bit more in our own image, which is part of the reason why, you know, I was like on board to become like the vice chair of the CFDA because I was like, okay, this is an institution that means a lot to people. How can we actually help rebuild it, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that makes sense? And Tom Brown is like a very different person than, than I am. But I think, you know, having him as the president and, and working alongside him. The other day, I was talking to him. and He's and he deaf was, taking me off that list for asking this question. N- no. <laughs> You're like, so I, never, I never get to vote again. I'm like, You're what like, I didn't get that. I didn't get that email this year, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the reality of this country right now is like, you know, it's like we did it, Joe. It's like in yeah. a, a lot of instances, there's still like, you know, this kind of classic, uh, person at the top of a situation and you know there's other people that have to come in and say like how can we you know push this forward in an interesting way and mm-hmm. I think that's like what we're doing over there I think also sometimes people don't understand that you need to be in a room to open a door and then there's this always this like well said counter argument where it's like we we could just build our own thing and it's like, but why should you be excluded from that thing? Right? Why can't we have both? Why can't we have our own thing and be and have a seat at this table? So it's, it's Yeah, no, yeah. I I agree. And I think people had that with the pledge too, right? Like they were like, Why are you pushing like for, you know, black owned brands to be on these white shelves? Like we should just build our own store. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you totally should build your own store. But by the way, there is absolutely no reason why white people shouldn't have black products at their store and also be buying from black owned brands. Like I never said that black people need to exclusively shop at, you know, any of these stores that take the pledge. Right. right? What I said is that the most amount of customers in the country need to have the broadest access to black products so we can drive as much money as possible into black communities. 
where you decide to shop as a person of color is entirely up to you. And if there's a black owned retailer that you want to frequent exclusively, all the power to you. But that doesn't mean that Susie from Boise, Idaho shouldn't also have the opportunity to shop and support black owned businesses as well. Exactly. I answered my own question. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciated I appreciated that question. You need to know, like, you need to know what's actually like itching people in the back of their mind. Totally. And I think I do think also you get that with your relationship with like Anna and Vogue. That's my like personal opinion. Because Mm. you know, I think everybody has which is ironic because nobody really knows her. Well, that's the other thing. Like, you know, yeah, I don't either. Uh, So, you know, my, I'm just kind of like looking at it from like, that's like just like an objective point of view I have from like consuming media. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy to just like, I can't imagine what it's like to be a person that is pretty much like, I mean, can you think of someone else that's been like that, uh, like, made into a stereotype that much Mm -hmm. and then like everything evil about fashion is just like projected onto this woman like well it's easy onto this woman it's easy for people to do that I know I think it's very it's 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 very fascinating because at the same time people don't talk about like the fact that like she's the largest fundraiser for the democratic party right Mm -hmm. and when I think about you know, what it actually means to um, do some of that work. I don't know. It's always so clear. I mean, I'm very political, right? So so I always think about like, who shows up for on like voter registration? Who shows mm-hmm. up to actually do that work in terms of celebrities? Like who's actually going to like endorse Stacey Abrams or just like not, you know, because it makes right. a difference because we're in such a volatile environment. And mm-hmm. um I think that she's done a tremendous job over the years to actually get people who like otherwise really don't give a shit or pay attention at all to understand like why uh, participating is important. Um, she's also like, you know, a 70 year old woman. Like she's, 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 she's been around for a long time. And right. so I think it's like when you know, people watch friends and they're like, this is outdated. It's like, yeah, everybody did outdated things in that window of time. And now right. we've, I mean, you know, also like sex in the city. I don't know if you've watched any of those old episodes, but I'm like, Ooh, like Carrie was basically describing rape. In this episode. No. Like, like, you know, she's like, yeah, I just like laid there and took it even though I hated it. And I was just like, Oh, cute. Okay. Like it's just like really yeah. fascinating. You know, speaking of politics, what was so surprising for me was how many of my friends in LA supported Rick Crusoe. I was like, wow, this is, and really, like, I would say that the majority of my close friends supported Rick Crusoe. And I live in a neighborhood where uh, there was not one Karen Bass sign up. I was like, wow, it's interesting to see, like, you, but they also had like Black Lives Matter and all the other shit in the room. Oh, like all these things so contradict crazy. one another. By the way, yeah, no, it's a, it's like, it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's like, I believe this totally, except in this instance. You know what right. I mean? It's like I want people to actually be taken care of, except for when it means that like my neighborhood might be adversely impacted or some of my tax dollars might have to go towards this. It's like 
it's very um, challenging because so much of, I think, people's activism is just like online and they're not mm-hmm. really willing to fully embody it. I'm sure you see that all the time doing what you do. Um, yes, but also in myself, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> right? Like it's it's hard not it's hard to walk the walk at all times. I mean, you can't, right? We're all mm-hmm. works in progress. There's certain things that I do where I'm like, uh, you know, when we're talking about the water consumption, I like got like all triggered in my head for a second because I was like, oh yeah, my drip irrigation, like such a problem. Like, am I going to let my grass die again this year? I guess so, you know, but I really don't want to. I really like my grass. Like, you know, it's like that battle all the time in your head. And I think what's so important is like every day just trying to make an effort. And I think that's the thing that's been so important for me is like seeing certain people say, okay, I want to actually make an effort here and then see how they show up to do it. And I think, you know, in reference to your question about like CFDA and also with Vogue, like those are two organizations that I've actually seen show up and authentically make an effort in very real ways versus a lot of other companies that are just so quick to make all of these like proclamations where so much of it just feels like it's optic, you know? Were there any instances in which um, you had to like reassess like relationships or partnerships in your life when you were like, okay, this is my stand. Yes. I have friends for sure that I've been like very close friends with that I'm not friends with anymore because it was like irreconcilable differences after I launched the pledge. Wow. Tea. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. 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 And, and it's not like that was exclusive to white people either. Like, right. There were Actually, people- I, I feel like the backlash would probably, it's always within the community the most, which is like, the, like, yeah. Isn't it crazy? That's like always the challenge. It's like so frustrating. You're like, this is for us. Well, some people had a big issue with me making it a nonprofit. That was a big issue. Because people were like, well, why wouldn't you just take the bag and like, it could just be consulting contracts with all of these people and, and like, you know. Right. Why do we have to do this as a nonprofit kind of thing? Did you not put that in the book? You didn't want to have to name names. <laughs> yeah. Ah, even more to you. Because I got all the unhinged exclusives, people. <laughs> it's challenging. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there are some people that were like willing to show up and 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 do the work and hold people to task, and mm-hmm. you know. But also, like by the way, that's not everyone's. And here's the other thing. It's like, it's not up to women of color to do the work, right? Like it should actually be up to white people to do the work. So if any of my friends say, I don't want to do this work, I don't want to work with these companies. I actually just want to get like a huge paycheck to do whatever. It's also kind of like, okay, that's not me, but it can be you. And that's okay, right? right? Like there's certain things that I'm not going to do. There were also certain like partnerships that I had that I was supposed to do in 2020 that I had to cancel. Because I was like, I can't be out here saying this and then out here partnering with this brand in this way. Right. You know, which, which if you read the book, guys, you'll realize I was actually surprised at your financial situation. You also probably didn't even have the luxury of saying like, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> what she <Yeah>. said. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, no, because the thing is like the optics of it were like you were super successful at all the events. I'd see you at everything. You were always put together. You, you know, it's like you never really know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's like Brother Valleys for me has always been such a huge passion project, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like it's hard to have a business and like scale it without money, you know, like it, it's so challenging. And, and then to try to prioritize, you know, paying for things that are people that you want to actually pay properly. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, as an entrepreneur, a lot of times like you come last. And I think it's so fascinating because, you know, someone was asking me, someone was saying kind of the other day, like, Oh my God, I thought that you were so successful at that time. And actually like you really weren't. And I was like, no, but I, I was, I felt successful because I felt like my dream was coming true. My dream was Mm -hmm. working with these artisans and having them make amazing things and supporting them and supporting the idea of like, you know, things that were like multi-generationally relevant to certain communities being celebrated. And like, that was what was happening. So, and that was my benchmark. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My job. So, so I think for me, like, I never, I, I, was, I was just always so bad at prioritizing the financial stuff. And my mom was always right. just like, do the thing that you love and like the financial stuff will come later. I also remember like kind of sitting with like friends and, and then them being like, oh, is your money in this? Is your money in that? I'm like, no, I like grew up when my parents were like, put your money in the bank. Right. I'm like, wow. Like I just like missed a whole chapter, you know, like I financial literacy. It's scaled and it, it it's, it very, it's so subjective. Yeah, totally. It is. And I think, you know, like for me, ultimately, mm-hmm. what was the worst thing ever was being short that $70,000. I was short $70,000 once when I was trying to grow the business. I had got a purchase order from a big store and, and they wouldn't give me a deposit. And so I was $70,000 short. And I took a loan and the loan ended up costing me $1.2 million to get out. Yeah, I, when you said over a million dollars in the book, yeah. I was so mad. I know. And he actually offered me, he was like, I'll take $500,000 off of the bill if you sign an NDA. And I was like, absolutely not. And, and that's so that I can talk about it now. You should send him a signed copy of the book. I know. I really should. should. That's actually a great idea. I think I will. You're Um, like, thanks for the inspo, sweetheart. XOXO. Totally, totally, totally. Um, And I think for me, like having that, you know, financial weight of that loan that was just growing and growing and growing on my back actually forced me to build a much stronger business and learn so much. It was like, I was on a call earlier today with, um, like the C-suite of a black owned business that was like going through some stuff and, 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 troubleshooting with them some of the financial stuff where I could just be like because now I've gone through everything right like I had to learn and had to take basically an MBA on the fly just to keep my business alive and figure certain things out so in some ways it like was a blessing because then once I got rid of him we were able to like grow the business in a much more healthy way and all of that jazz and 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 you know but like geez 
it was bad, right? But and then on the flip side of it, which I also want to ask you, how do you ask people for favors? Oh, I'm so bad at that. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. I only usually yeah. ask on behalf of other people. Okay. See, because I was like, I, I, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, you asked, I can't remember, like a model to be in the lookbook in exchange oh, yeah. for shoes. And then like, you were like doing a lot of work for like, in, like there was just like a lot of like exchanging happening back in the day when you were kind of like, you know, grassroots. And I was like, I bet she's a really good favor asker. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess so. I think I'm also a good favor giver. Yeah. I think that you have to give more than what you ask for, you know? Definitely. Like, I think I spend a lot of time, like, showing up for people in lots of different ways. I'm kind of that person that you call, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, but it gives me it gives me so much anxiety to ask. Even in relationships? Well, I think sometimes if you have to ask in a relationship but that's a very like woman thing to say like oh my god that every yeah. single guy I've ever dated would be like what the hell screw you but like I think mm-hmm. if you have to ask sometimes maybe it's from I don't know no I think I ask See, in I think I think that is like bad no I, I think certain things you shouldn't have to ask but then also now like from being married I realize that people are clueless <laughs> That's good that you realized that while you were married. I only realized that once I was divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, I really have to like explain, you know, like top to bottom why this just yeah. like does not fly and like why you can't know. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm better. I think I'm better at, I'm pretty like honest and open, I think, in relationships now just because I'm like, I'd rather just you know this now and I ask for this and I either know if I'm going to be able to have my need met or not. Right. Because there's no such thing as being needy. Mm-hmm. Something very I true. learned from therapy. <laughs> yeah. No, very true. Very true. Very true. I like your therapist. She's good. Yeah. I'll give you her name offline. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, guys. I kept her on for like another 30 minutes. So <laughs> enjoy the double episode. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. And the book comes out today. That's the episode Woo-hoo. we're coming out. The book comes out today. So get your copy. The link is in the bio. The link is in the episode description. I think every single person should read this book because every single person is a consumer. And this book is about making the is it basically is about everything that informs your consumption choices. So Aside from the personal memoir stuff, I think that whether you're interested in fashion or inside a scoop tea, you get it all really in the book. I think Actually, ultimately it's like the best possible Mother's Day read ever. Yes. <laughs> but wait, I want to ask you, no, I do I have one last question. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. Please don't hate me. Um, but really you're thanking me for this gift of an episode. What was the, What was in the book that you thought people would have the most issue with? Well, I know what <laughs> I think that I think that uh, there's a lot of people that are still incredibly triggered by uh, myself and AOC coming into like a very public forum with her messaging, you know, of tax the rich. And I think that people still are very like ah! about that. Even like our world people or just everyone? 
<sighs> I think like our world people mostly get it, right? Yeah. Um, but then like our world sometimes feels smaller once you're out in the big world. And big world people tend to be louder than our world people because our world people are kind of just like, duh. And then yeah. big world people are like, who the hell do these women think they are? Well, especially like all the CEOs and C-suite people that you're then having these conversations with, right? Like that's who you're talking about. Yeah, but a lot of them get it. It's like, yeah, it's like, I mean, if they're having a conversation with you, they in some way get it. Yeah, totally. It'll, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like someone's like stepdad, you know, that like doesn't get it. That's like a really big Republican or something like that. It, and, and it's, yeah. But it's also really fascinating because like any of my friends who were like uber wealthy totally mm-hmm. got it. But then like the people that'll be so upset about it, like, are not even the people that she's talking about. <laughs> so I'm like, why well, don't get it? She's actually I mean, it's like the Latino behalf. Trump vote or like any of those things. You're like, this is right. basically like chickens being formed McNuggets. Like self-loathing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's like that. Yeah. I mean, lots of people who are saying wild, wild things that, QAnon people I mean also like I feel like that starts to hit like closer and closer to home as we go on I think we're in for a fascinating next two years for sure um I will I have some opinions on that that I will I will share with you once I press stop recording (laughs) all right guys thank you so much for sticking around um leave us a review if you love this episode because if you have excellent taste why would you not duh (laughs) thank you so much for coming onto the show I love you and I I loved reading your book it was a gift um I hope you all feel the same and send us some love notes send us your thoughts we want to know what you thought of the episode and what you thought of the book feel free to slide in our dms all right ciao for now guys bye